You are listening to the Heavenly Chi podcast, episode number 58. Today I'm joined by Narva Carmen, and we're going to be discussing women's health and fertility as a specialization of Chinese medicine. G'day, Claire. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks, Narva. It's good to have you on the show. And, um, and you'll be joining me for a few shows. Hope so. We've got a couple of good episodes planned, I think. Yeah, I think it'll be it'll be good to have a few episodes focused on women's health and the treatment of fertility, which is of course your main area of expertise and your main area of clinical experience. It is my lady jam. That's true. <laughs> I've never heard that term used before. I read Straight off Pitch Perfect, which I watched last night again for like the third time because I love the songs. <laughs> Remember the shower scene? Did you ever see that? I've not seen it and I have a terrible memory for movies. <laughs> My brain just doesn't remember them. Well, I think probably that's the most innocuous statement that I could have made coming from that movie. <laughs> Very good. So women's health and fertility as a specialisation of Chinese medicine. And I chose this topic because it's a topic that I think is really important for us to discuss as practitioners, mm-hmm. um, and especially so because it's such a it is a specialised area. It's a it's a very niched area of clinical practice, and there is an absolute enormous mountain of knowledge that you need to acquire in order to be fairly proficient at being able to treat these types of cases. And it's it's not an area that we want to try and discourage people from getting into because, of course, we all have to start somewhere. But we do want to, I guess, open up some discussion around what type of guidelines and what type of support should we have in place to, I guess, enable this to become a really you know, a substantiated specialisation in and of its own right. I think it probably already is, but I guess they're the types of topics that I was thinking we would cover tonight. But rolled into what you were saying is also the idea of safety, safety for the practitioner and safety for the patient too. Yeah, because there's this big, you know, I mean, Chinese medicine is such a huge system of medicine and, you know, we learn what we learn in our courses and whether we do a three, four or five year degree or education in Chinese medicine, we, we learn the basics and we learn enough to be fairly competent as practitioners and to provide safe and fairly effective treatments for our patients. But it's really just, it's a starting point from which our continuing development and education as practitioners continues. And, you know, anyone who's spent any amount of time in the world of learning about Chinese medicine knows that the more you learn, the more you know that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite a humbling experience. Well, I've found, you know, the 20 well, years yeah. that I've had exposed to the body of Chinese medicine knowledge, you know, I feel like I still only know, you know, a small percentage of what it is possible to know. I uh, thoroughly agree. And speaking of which, this is our second go round on this podcast due to me, talking about learning from experience. Um, I had to have a go as a beginner and get it wrong and reflect on it and learn from it and hopefully get it right. 
this time. So it's really, it was a very useful thing because I think that it's always good to be a beginner at something because it puts you back to that place in your head where you realize how, how vulnerable you can feel and how important it is to get a chance to learn and to have guidance and to reflect and to be vulnerable and to get it right. And that's kind of a little bit like starting out in the fertility world, isn't it? Where you kind of learn on your patients in a funny way, but you try and do so hopefully with the right support around you so that your learning is a positive arc. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and I think that, you know, the world is definitely, you know, there's a lot more community now than what there was, mm. you know, 15, 20 years ago when you and I were starting out. And there's a lot more support and, I guess, formality and structure now around fertility and women's health education, which just wasn't there when we were learning it. But, you know, there was one, there was one textbook and a handful of courses that you could go to. And I don't even think we had that many. I had Giovanni's Red Book, which had one tiny little standardised textbook and had one tiny little picture of a basal temperature chart and not really any explanation that then came later with people like Jane Littleton, but not really anything that gave me an idea what to do. So I was forced to read medical textbooks and kind of experiment on my patients back then because we just didn't have that context and that knowledge. We graduated from college like GPs, right? And I've worked my way into a consultant status, to use that analogy, but man, I didn't start that way. And there was no culture of mentoring or supervision or or any kind of business or entrepreneurial way of holding practitioners in practice that support the clinical knowledge. Yeah, I, that was definitely my experience as well. I felt like I fumbled my way through those first few years of practice in, in terms of supporting women that had more complex needs around fertility and, you know, more complicated women's health issues. What sort of things were you seeing that was complicated for you at the time? I guess, you know, a, a combination of things, some things that weren't necessarily so complicated, but, you know, the, the clinical implications of leaving certain things undertreated, for example. So I still have this um, memory of a patient that I was treating quite a few years ago, probably I'd say 12 or 13 years ago, and she was incredibly incredibly blood deficient and incredibly spleen sheet deficient mm -hmm. and was treating her throughout her pregnancy. Well, towards the end of her pregnancy, um, they'd taken over her case from a colleague who went on maternity leave herself. And this woman was so, so profoundly deficient. It really struck me. And, you know, I was having conversations with her about, you know, getting her iron levels checked and, um, you know, talking about supportive diet measures and having, um, you know, coming for regular treatment. And she was very reluctant to take on board any changes. She refused to have testing done. She refused to take an iron supplement. She refused to have Chinese herbs. And she came for acupuncture occasionally when it was convenient to her, but not as often as, as I would have liked her to come. And unfortunately, during labour, she had a, a massive hemorrhage and she lost 
over 12 litres of blood and required multiple transfusions. They were just hanging out bag after bag. And she ended up having an emergency hysterectomy. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, I was supporting her in the aftermath of that. And, um, you know, they'd done IVF and they still had embryos in the freezer. But meanwhile, she was grieving the loss of her uterus and trying to care for this new baby. And her pelvis was then riddled with endometriosis because of the bleeding. And it was just the most horrendous outcome from that situation. And who knows whether things could have been different. From that time onward, I was always very aware of speaking my truth as a practitioner and, and not, not playing nice just for the sake of being nice, you know, that I wish I had have had some more stern conversations around, hey, this is, you know, you're at risk for these things mm. and you need to get this sorted out rather than just saying, oh, well, you know, if her doctor thinks it's okay and, you know, she's continuing, you know, she was having wine regularly, um, you know, with her meals um, and that, you know, there's quite a few things that were that was going on that really pushed the buttons for me. And it's not that it's necessarily a complicated thing to be able to identify spleen T deficiency and blood deficiency and to be able to treat it, but to understand the risks and the clinical implications that that type of condition can put a woman into and to be able to explain that and to be able to support a woman through that decision-making process of, of um, you know, taking on the risk or mitigating the risk. I think that that's the purview of a more experienced practitioner to be able to do that. I think you're right. I think also there's something about that I referenced earlier, having that business infrastructure. There's something for me that comes in here about thinking about the implications of that being able to write them down to follow up with an email so it's in your notes and it's written to the client so everyone's clear about what your recommendations are, whether they choose to take them up or not. And having sort of that infrastructure to support your clinical knowledge there. So it's sort of holding the patient to account in a way for their own choices, both in the present and in the future. And something about also putting your own mind at rest that you've done everything you can. Yeah, absolutely. And it strikes me what a similar situation, you know, probably all, all of us have been through this at, at one point or another, but I had a client a number of years ago who I had worked with with endometriosis and had she'd had a, an IVF cycle and had been pregnant and she'd come to the end, I think she was around 34 weeks when she came to see me again. Um, and at that point, I think she just was in the mindset of, you know, I've had enough, I just want this all to be okay. So I felt her pulse and I looked at her tongue and I took her history and I just said to her, look, I think your chi is going the wrong way and I'm just concerned about this baby coming too early when the chi is flowing the wrong way. Can you consider just some herbs for only about a week and just come see me next week? And she declined both of those things and she went into labour and had her baby the next week early and with complications. Now, we have no idea whether all this stuff would have happened without our inter- with if we had been able to intervene, if it might still have happened. But just like your experience, it was a ringing reminder for me to just be really clear in my own language about what I thought was happening and what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It sounds like a very similar situation and it really weighs heavily 
well for me anyway like my my memory of that time and my memory of that patient is is still quite clear you know more than a decade later um, and it sounds like yours is similar and I had actually some supervision around that um, specifically to deal with that because I felt there was a lot of other stuff that happened in the aftermath but without going into that it was a very interesting opportunity for me to think about trust in a therapeutic relationship and about expectation, both of them and me of myself. And it's always interesting, isn't it, that the good stuff that we hear, you know, fortunate, and I know for your practice as well as mine, we hear a lot of good stuff, much more than bad stuff, but it's the bad stuff that stays with you, isn't it, that you 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 hold and you learn from and that is is just sort of it sticks with you as you say almost a decade later it's still there whereas all the lovely experiences build up to a good feeling but are not that crystal clear experience that teaches us so much yeah you know I'm curious what would you do differently with that patient if she were to grace the walls of your clinic now I'm not sure I could do much different than I did I didn't write it down that's why I said that to you because that was a big learning for me, I would definitely write it down what I had to say. And I would have done the work that I've now done on stepping back and saying, this is your journey. Your choices are not my choices. And you not listening to me doesn't mean that our relationship's trust is broken. It's just you're making a different choice. At the time, I felt that she didn't trust me enough to follow my advice, having got her to that, helped her get to that point. And so I felt that there was a a break in our relationship that in some ways wasn't recoverable from, whereas I don't feel that that is the case anymore. You know, that's really interesting you say that. Um, And one of the things I picked up from that was that your perspective on, your, your perspective on taking your patients' choices on board has changed since then. And that your experience as a practitioner over time has led you to a point where you can support your patients in whichever path they choose. And that's something that resonates for me as well. That I I definitely feel it's much easier now for me to present the patient with, you know, solid information on their choices as I see it. And that whichever path they choose to go down, they have my full support. And that that allows me to then take my my heart, my feelings, my feeling of responsibility away because my responsibility has been fulfilled. And I guess that's part of what comes with experience, you know, in the first years. And potentially it's the way that Chinese medicine was taught to me and potentially to you. Maybe it's still taught this way. But I think I definitely took on far too much responsibility and credit in the early years of my practice Um, and I and I feel that that has changed significantly over time I agree with you and I think that's when I'm fertility work obstetric work is if you're not careful can be and I hear this a lot from from practitioners I'm mentoring and working with who are newer in practice that they feel drained by it emotionally and physically drained burnt out by the caring And I think that shift that happens over time and in my case with that reflective practice of 
mentoring and supervision coaching myself, to take that step back and to be present when you need to be present, but not hold the client through, not feel like you have to hold the client through every step of the journey. So rather than that feeling of responsibility you alluded to, that you're walking beside them, and that allows you to continue to work in this intense, demanding, exciting field, but without being burnt out by the experience of doing that. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, that idea of meeting the patient where they're at and supporting them in the ways in which they need is is really how we evolve into being, you know, really great practitioners and we don't necessarily have these these criteria that, you know, if our patients don't do these things, we fire them or... Mm you know, if my patient won't take their herbs, then they absolutely can't be my patient anymore. Sometimes, sometimes they're just, they're so far away from that capability. We need to obviously work out whether or not seeing us is the right thing for them to be doing. But, you know, the fact that we're, we're with them and stepping along with them through that journey, wherever their starting point is and whatever their end point might be, and especially with fertility work, you know, it's a very black and white outcome in the sense that you're either pregnant and go on to have a baby and and grow your family or not. Like there's, there's not really a lot of grey area unless you, you know, also shift the focus towards improved overall health and vitality of of the couple as kind of like, you know, the secondary benefits of undertaking treatment. I think you're right. That's huge. I always say to my clients that from a healthy mother or father comes a healthy baby. So centering health, yes, for sure. But I also have come to have a sort of a different phraseology or different framework around fertility work in that I say to my clients, we live in an age where I can say to you that you'll leave your time with me with a baby. We just don't know how that baby's going to arrive. And that leaves it open to natural fertility, assisted fertility, surrogacy, IVF, egg donation, because thank God we live in a world where I believe now that it's never not going to be possible, very rarely not going to be possible, but we just don't know how you're going to get there. So it's kind of navigating that journey and that maze with them till we get to that outcome. And funnily enough, I also leave room for the and maybe not bit of this because I have had some clients over the years who've, who've done this journey with me and have arrived at the end of that journey saying, actually, you know what, I think I'm okay. It's not what I would have chosen, but I'm not going to go down this road anymore and I'm going to stay happily childless or child-free with my partner or without my partner. And I think we don't necessarily in our work when we're so focused on babies, leave room for the fact that sometimes the outcome is the no babies outcome and happiness and contentment with that aspect too. Yes, absolutely. And also that sometimes sometimes couples will end up choosing not to be with each other as well. Mm. Um, and that's also part of their, part of their journeys, um, especially when you're dealing with relationships where you know over time there can be a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on the relationship particularly when the desire for a child is mismatched between you know one partner has a greater desire for a baby than the other one and 
you know, that can create a lot of conflict, particularly if there's one one partner who's not wanting to participate in treatment, um, you know, and that's often a reflection of the greater relationship dynamic that, um, you know, what goes on at home behind closed doors um, and the way in which they negotiate other things in their life and having that process laid out into the open and discussed with a health professional like us, you know, we spend a lot more time discussing those types of things with our patients and relationship dynamics and, you know, the ways in which all these things can play out and, you know, sometimes just being a sounding board and reflecting that back to the patient that they they become aware that there's lots of other areas in their life in which there's a mismatch and that, you know, in some ways they they see that a baby not coming to them is a blessing and it frees them from being able to, you know, they don't feel like they need to stay in that relationship any longer. You know, it doesn't work for them in many different ways, not just the, the not being able to grow beyond the two parents. That's interesting. I've I kind of come at it in from a different direction. I agree with you from the point of view of sometimes having a baby causes couples to move apart, but my experience hasn't been as positive as yours in that it sounds like you've had clients who've decided that actually this is not working and if they don't have to have a baby, they don't have to stay together. But my experiences have very much been about the woman wanting a baby and the man not necessarily being on board uh, and in the majority and a baby sort of placing like a, like a fulcrum also almost it that places the pressure of having a child or not being able to have a child places on the relationship cracks the relationship where the fault lines already are and I remember years ago I did a course thinking about was I thinking about perhaps retraining or doing some additional training as a couples counselor because I saw so much pressure from infertility and, and how it, it brought to bear particularly on on the, ma- the male side of things and um I came out of it firstly with a deep understanding that I was not fit to be a counsellor. And secondly, I went off and I found a psychosexual counsellor who was a man. And I've had a very successful working relationship with him for many, many years because putting a couple in the room with a woman as a counsellor, I have found is not as successful as putting them in the room with a man because the male part of the couple therefore doesn't automatically feel ganged up on by women and is often able to deal with things differently or better having that dynamic there. But my experience has been very much that the problems in the relationship that are already there come out and in a way they become the reason for infertility rather than anything else. Hmm. Absolutely. You know, especially if you've got, you know, a woman who, and, and a lot of the time it's the woman that's coming to see us for treatment and the man's the, the, um, the one who's not participating. I have seen it the other way around as well, um, you know, but, off, you know, quite often there's, you know, control issues and there's a, you know, there can often be a really uncomfortable and ugly power dynamic that can be going on where, um, you know, there's the woman's feelings and desires are belittled or made fun of or you know, almost uses as emotional leverage within the relationship and there can be some really awful relationship dynamic stuff to, to try and support 
support that woman through and um you know sometimes just for a woman to say it out loud and to reflect back to her well you know how do you feel about that and you know how does it make you feel when you know when he does things like this or when he says things like this you know that can be quite you know our part of our role is to empower yeah women and and men in this process and um and there's also an opportunity for us to help improve their relationship not just to you know encourage them to split if that's what needs to happen but to you know encourage the relationship dynamic to improve and to shine the light on these dark areas to um you know to highlight where repairs need to be made and when you do get both partners on board with change it's just the best isn't it you just get yeah. to see and yeah. funnily enough once the guy gets it often they're fully, fully on board, like zealously on board. And the change in so many areas is phenomenal. And sometimes the best change of all is just the woman feeling like she's not in it on her own, that their, 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 their partner is literally physically and practically doing all the stuff that she's doing, taking the vitamins without being told, showing up to appointments, doing the exercise, doing the mindfulness, whatever it is that we're taking the herbs, whatever it is we're doing, that they're there with them as a partner. That can be transformative. And all of a sudden he gets to be the hero of the story. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If they realise that, that, that what they can bring, I, I wonder if they wouldn't do it more. Yes, which is partly why part of the motivation for me writing my book, you know, for these men and to say, hey, you know what, you can be the hero of this story. You can actually support her in ways that you didn't even realise were possible. And we need that. We need your book. We've needed it for years. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully if you're listening to this, you know, 12 months in the future, if you're not in, you know, we're recording this in May 2020. So if you're listening in the future, then in all likelihood the book is out. So please get hold of it and give to your patients. It's designed to be read to, by the woman to the man whilst he's in some kind of captivity. So I recommend, you know, go on a, go on a road trip with your man. Um, he's a captive audience and uh, read it to him out loud in the car. Kind this of is thing. a unique opportunity for you, Claire, though. You've got to record the audio version of this. Yes, and there's an online program to go with it as well. Amazing. Yeah. So what are the things that, what are the things that define working in fertility as, as the type of area that requires specialist knowledge? Well, that's an interesting question. I had a conversation with a very valued colleague about three weeks ago um, that caused me to reflect on that. She's a five element acupuncturist and I do herbs for a number of her patients. And when she first started sending clients to me in the, in the fertility area, um, because I see complex work, I was having to go back to her and ask her a ton of questions she didn't have answers to, or just having to do a whole consultation from scratch. And I ended up basically teaching her how to redo a consultation and we worked out together that we had a really different skill set that she did, was doing things that I didn't have the skills for and vice versa. And we, we made a very good team. 
And then I wrote an article about how to choose a fertility acupuncturist that came out. And she got in touch with me because it had really deeply affected her. I think it had upset her and she wanted to, thank God she came to me, felt able to talk to me about it. And she said to me, we were always taught in college that as long as you understood your diagnosis, you could treat anything. Um, but it seems to me that you're not saying that. And we talked it through and the conclusion we came to was, no, I wasn't saying that. And particularly I wasn't saying it because we're in the 21st century and when all of our traditional texts were being written, they really didn't take into account IVF or what happens in mismanaged IVF with hyperstimulation when you have polycystic ovary syndrome or the implications for fertility when you have endometriosis and autoimmune conditions and the drugs that you have to navigate at the same time. And I think that there is something very important about learning and upskilling yourself in integrated medicine so you can translate it to Chinese medicine so you can treat as what you see and there's something really important about acknowledging the fact that when you go into fertility as a specialization that it is a different skill set to the skill set you're taught at school and that it does require further learning and mentoring and supervision and really intention to go into this field yeah I think so you know that it comes down to that idea of you know we don't know what we don't know. Um, and, well, there's there's two categories. There's things that we know that we don't know it and then there's things that we don't even we don't know, know that we, we don't know. We don't even know that we don't know it. We don't even know that it's a thing. And, and that's where the danger comes, I guess. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily going to be an issue for your patient because there are, you know, Chinese medicine and, you know, acupuncture and Chinese herbs work in fabulous ways and yes if our diagnosis is correct there are all kinds of things that will resolve you know all of us have had patients who have not disclosed their full health history to us and who have then come in and revealed that their you know long-standing problem has magically resolved and we never even knew about it yet we were able to fix it mm. um, however that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about people who have more complex needs than just, you know, a simple move some liver chi around and regulate the period and, you know, a woman's going to conceive in a couple of cycles with a low-risk pregnancy. That's not necessarily what we're talking about because that type of, you know, that type of thing can is, is a good place for people to start if they're wanting to get into treating pregnancy but it's it's that ability to know when you're out of your depth and to have a strategy in place for recognizing it and for managing your patients in a different way once you do recognize okay here's a great learning opportunity for me how can I best support my patient to get a great outcome and also at the same time support my learning so I do something here which is I offer practitioners a consultation option so not I'm luckily enough to have a waiting list. So I, I don't want to take on more clients, but I do want to serve clients and serve my colleagues. So what I will do is I in, sort of with my mentoring hat on, I will see their clients with them for a consultation so they can just be part of that conversation or I will see them for them and then write a big report up for them and get it, give it back to them. So I try as much as I can in that sense to support, 
without taking away their patient in any way, it still very firmly remains their client, their responsibility, their clinical learning, but to facilitate their clinical learning so they get to know what they don't know and then they can run with that and learn from it and expand their practice with that, that tiny chip of intervention that they need on a purely clinical level. Yeah, I think that's a great service. And, you know, how amazing would that have been for you for you and I to have had that oh when we God. were learning? <laughs> I always feel like I want to go back and refund the first five years of my practice or give more their money back because we didn't have it. We just didn't have it. What are some of the cases where you know now that you would treat them very differently? Like what are the, what are the features of, of those cases where now it would flag to you, but back then you kind of, it didn't occur to you to do things differently? I'm sitting here nodding when you're saying that because I have a case that immediately springs to mind immediately and it was a case around blood stasis and bleeding and my god that was like a transformative learning experience for me that I'm just messed up I messed it up there's no way to go around it other than to say that and she came to me with this heavy bleeding and I absolutely knew I knew she had endo I looked at her chart I took her history she hadn't been diagnosed but I just instinctively knew it but I had the words ringing in my ear from my my uh, teaching, which was, you know, don't break blood in the luteal phase. Um, don't break blood um, when there's heavy bleeding there. We've been taught, we haven't been taught the nuances of, of blood stasis and bleeding. And, you know, if there's heavy bleeding, you know, breaking blood will just make it bleed more. And so what I did is I tonified this poor woman, which was the last thing she needed. And I made that bleeding like 10 times worse. And it's, she went at my recommendation, went to see a, a surgeon I work with and she had a, an MRI and a laparoscopy, which showed extensive endo and she had an operation and she didn't come back and I don't blame her. Um, but it was an absolute aha moment for me of the value of using my own brain when it came to being really specific and clear about my diagnosis and then treating what I saw and about the fact that we it is, I believe now that it is unethical to not treat what you see because you're afraid. And I now teach a lot about in my uh, auto, in my reproductive immunology module, I have an online learning platform for practitioners, um, which is a diploma uh, in advanced level fertility acupuncture. And the biggest and most important module is the one on reproductive immunology. And that contains a whole section on sort of the refutation of what we were taught were forbidden points and herbs. And placing the emphasis, I think, quite rightly back on just getting your diagnosis crystal clear and treating exactly what you need to see, what you see in the way it needs to be treated in order to get the outcome you need. Because I think that if I had done what I now know needed to have been done, she may still have had that operation, but for sure we could have dealt with that bleeding. And I have since dealt with blood stasis bleeding and all sorts of issues and treating in the luteal phase, even when pregnant and breaking blood where it's appropriate but my god what a learning experience that was to have stuffed it up so badly and then to have gone on this whole new track about how to treat that has ended up me sharing my learning with others mm, yeah it's a great example of getting getting your diagnosis right and and you know questioning these superstitions that have permeated our profession you know i've been involved in arguments you know, theoretical arguments with practitioners over whether or not we should even use Dungwei in pregnancy, let mm -hmm. alone, you know, some of the herbs that you're 
insinuating here, which are far more um, blood invigorating than Dunguay is. Absolutely. And there's fear, right? It's fear ingrained into every taught fear, learned fear, that's ingrained to all of that conversations. And even having a correct understanding of, you know, what do we mean when we say blood invigorating or blood breaking, you know, Mm. breaking blood stasis? What do we even mean by that? And how does that, how does that look from, you know, are we imagining that patients are going to be, you know, hemorrhaging out of their eyeballs or, (laughs) you know, like, you know, we're so, we're so welcoming of women, you know, and, you know, from a fertility practitioner's point of view, we're so welcoming of our pregnant patients being on Clexane and yet at the same time, you know, we're hesitant in other circumstances to use herbs like herbs like Dunguay, which are fairly benign and innocuous when used in a formula. There's a massive gap in our knowledge that I think leads to that that um, clinging on to superstitions and these falsehoods that just are perpetuated and we're not questioning and we're not melding together the two paradigms. And I think that word you used, imagining, I think that's a really powerful word when it comes to this because if I could take endometriosis, for example, you know, for many years I didn't and we were certainly taught not to, not to break blood, not to move chi, not to do anything that could, quote, cause a miscarriage in the luteal phase. But then when you come to a really clear understanding about endometriosis and your perception about what it looks like and your imagining about what it looks like and your understanding of what those lesions do in the body, are, and when you get that right, what you realise is that using the, the herbs that, that break and invigorate blood, that cool blood, that, that thin blood, what they actually do is enable conception in those cases. And so that reframing, that reimagining, that re-understanding of those two paradigms completely changes your success rates because you're able to see your tools in a completely new light. And I guess that comes down to that confidence in your diagnosis, which is what comes with experience and reflection and, you know, having, having the support to be bold and daring when required. And to have people to run it by before you do it, if you need it, like, does this look right to you? And just having someone go, yeah, yeah, that looks right. I would do that too. That's huge. Yeah, it is. So what are the cases that have come up for you that you had that reaction to, those aha moments where you look back and you think, shit, I got that wrong, and then, boom, it sent you off down a different road? I remember in my first year out, And I had a patient come to me and she had a uterine fibroid. And I remember thinking, okay, yep, I can help her with this. And it was a four and a half centimetre fibroid and I'd heard the five centimetre rule and I thought, yep, I can help her with this. And I looked it up and the formula to give her was Guaja Fulling 1. And I thought, yep, I've got this sorted. And I gave her some little black pearls and she came in for acupuncture. And I treated her for about two or three months. And then she went back and had a follow-up ultrasound and her gynecologist said to her, whatever you have been doing has caused this fibroid to grow and it had almost doubled in size over the three months that, um, that we'd done the treatment and she ended up choosing to have a hysterectomy. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, what did I get so wrong? Mm-hmm. What did I miss? 
And of course, you know, I missed even doing a proper diagnosis <laughs> um, and thinking that some patent black pill pills were going to be enough for tiny little things the like tiny candy. little things it's almost yeah. homeopathic doses they're so <laughs> they're so weak and you know somehow imagining that that was going to be you know all that she needed yeah so that was a that was a very humbling moment of thinking oh you know how did I get that so wrong and of course I treat it so differently now and you know but those those times of thinking wow wow what about you, Nava? Any other cases that that are in your memory bank? So over the years it's occurred to me that in many ways I've benefited from colleagues' generosity and I've always made a point to try and pay it forward wherever I can, wherever it's possible for me to do that. And for me that's been in lots of different ways. I remember when I first had, I'm, I'm a birth doula, but I first found my way to doulering when I had a client who I helped conceive and who she wanted me to be there for the birth and I just didn't feel ready to do so. And so I reached out to colleagues, really esteemed colleagues, who, and I just said, you know, you're, you attend birth, what do you do? And I paid for their time and they gave me their time um, and they, they educated me and they taught me about what it was I needed to know and it sent me off to do a doula training course and I'm now heavily involved in Doula UK and I run the feedback and complaints department and I do doula mentoring. But the beginning of that road was colleagues sharing their time and their expertise with me and me valuing it in turn by paying for it. And I think that transactional element is really important. And I try to do as much free stuff as possible, um, but I really value the people who come and who want to, to buy the time I dedicate to helping them to move their practice forward because I think that, what it did for me was so huge. What it enabled me for what it, that learning enabled me to do for my patients. It has never ending benefits to it. So there's something about continuing professional development and about giving generously of your time wherever possible. That feels really important to me as a fertility specialist with a little bit of expertise and standing under my belt. And I know you feel the same way with what you do. You run a Facebook group, a free Facebook group for practitioners to support them. Yes. Yeah. I run um, a free Facebook group to support practitioners. Um, and I also run group mentoring. Um, I run a regular, you know, every, a few times a year, I'll run a three month program with um, group mentoring of a small group. Um, I've been doing that for a few years and that's been really popular and really well received. Lots of people have done it multiple times, getting lots of value from it. Um, and then I do, you know, training as well, you know, seminars and webinars and things like that. But I think there's also a, um, you know, to step it back one, one step before that, there's a particular type of practitioner who is already fully on board with what we're talking about. And this is, you know, the desire to learn and the desire to identify where your weak spots are, where your blind spots are. The, you know, the parts in your practice where you're feeling challenged or where you would like to grow and you go out and you seek that support to help you further your career in whichever way. But there's another group of practitioners, and I guess they're the ones that we're hoping to appeal to today, that don't necessarily place that same level of importance or value on non-clinical skills, you know, that... If, if we're going to be talking about herbs and we're going to be talking about points, 
then, you know, I'm coming to the seminar, give me the handouts, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go off and do my thing. But some of what we're talking about is the intangible stuff or more about mindset or, um, you know, patient interaction and, um, you know, processes in your clinic. And that, that type of education is a real, it has a bit of stigma attached to it in our industry. It's, it is getting better and is improving. Um, but I think that there's, it'll be really great to see some changes in our industry where everyone kind of sees the value in, in improving themselves and, um, you know, furthering their skills in, in non acupuncture and herbal medicine ways, which I guess is what we're talking about. The whole, the whole thing, not just which herb, which point. I thoroughly agree. And in fact, one of the five modules in my diploma is a marketing module and it's all about doing that inner work and that mindset work. And I know you and I, between us, no exaggeration, have spent thousands upon thousands of pounds learning all of, you know, continuing to learn all of that mindset stuff and, and effectively learning what translates to customer service and retention skills. Uh, translates to successful practices that enable us to support ourselves and our families. And I think that they are, yeah, they're kind of a dirty, the, the, the selling aspect, if you like, is sort of the dirty word in our profession. And I'm very much of the mindset that you service a client better, you care better for a client if you can treat it, treat them and your business in a professional way and give them what they need with the infrastructure in which you support your clinical work. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I, I always like to say in response to this idea of selling, um, and this was, this was um, presented to me in a, in a sales seminar, funnily enough, that was not acupuncture-related at all. Most of my business training is not done by acupuncturists. Um, and it was the coolest line, and it stayed with me for years. And... And they made the comparison between between selling and buying. So, you know, the question was, who likes to be sold to? Nobody put their hand up. Nobody likes to be sold to. And then the next question was, who likes to buy stuff? Who likes to go shopping? Who likes to spend money? Who likes to get their credit card out? Everyone put up their hand because there is some, you know, there's always something that people get excited about, get motivated about. So then the next question was, how do you create a buying environment mm. in relation to your business? Because there are people out there who want our services and who need our services. And if we can create a buying environment, it's very different to an environment where we need to sell. That's so true. What a brilliant turning on its head of that concept. Because how many practitioners have you seen as a patient yourself? I know I speak for myself when I say, when I see a good practitioner, I feel great. And all I want to do is tell them how great they are and go and see them again and tell other people about them. And, you know, I have on a number of occasions said to practitioners, you're so good. I don't understand why you're not charging more. You want to be part of what they have to offer. So if you can create that, as you say, that buying experience, which is not a clinical skill, that's huge. And especially when I bring it back to fertility, when you're when you're in a a an environment with people who are vulnerable, I think it's incumbent upon us as practitioners to be 
clear and result-oriented and supportive of what we're doing with them so they feel like their experience with us is exactly what the empowered, effective, knowledgeable, supported experience that we, we all want them to have. Yeah, and all of these all of these skills and insights and perspectives, you know, they're, they're so useful in being able to support our patients to get the best outcomes that they can because a patient who drops off from treatment too early is not going to get the best outcome. The patient who, you know, doctor shops and, you know, spends a few months with this practitioner then goes to another practitioner and so on is not necessarily going to have that continuity of care to get the best outcome. So all of this stuff is about supporting good patient outcomes but it comes from a slightly different perspective and and I guess that's um that's all part of a holistic approach to running a fertility practice and I think that you know if if we're going to be doing ourselves any favors in terms of you know how do we how do we build fertility as a specialization we need to take into account those aspects as well. And so I, I think it's fabulous that you've got a marketing module in your course because it's so needed. It is so needed because it's, uh, it's a place where we fall down as practitioners time and time again. The other thing I've done that I think is probably worth mentioning, it's pertinent to say, is that when someone has done my diploma and they come on board with me as a fertility support trained practitioner, I give a lot of support at the back end to them. They have a ton of free CPD and, and access to me and we talk about cases and we do social media together and all lots of training and things. But the really important thing and this decision I made really clearly is that they don't get to renew their use of their logo and their connection to me every year by paying me any money. They renew it by continuing professional development in, in the business or fertility areas because for me it's about... When it comes to consumer safety, it's about finding a group of specialist practitioners. And I wanted to create that group who are so passionate about what they do that they they put their heart and their soul and their experience and their money where it needs to be, which is not on renewing a logo, but on continuing to keep up their knowledge. Mm. That felt yeah. really important to me. Yep. You're not just buying something. You're buying into a person who really is putting their money where their mouth is. It's so important, so important. I spend, I spend probably, well, I know because I submit it on my CPD record each year, but I do anywhere between 80 and 160 hours every year of continuing professional development. Mm. That resonates with me too. Yeah. And it's ongoing, isn't it? It's ongoing behind the scenes. It's courses we do, it's coaches we work with, it's the mastermind groups we attend, it's the books we read, it's the podcasts we listen to, it's, it's everything that we do that goes on simultaneously with and parallel to and alongside all of our clinical work that hopefully supports that good output that we give. Yes. Learning is a process, not as a destination. That's right. It's not like, you know, you become a fertility specialist a dedicated fertility practitioner or women's health practitioner in the day that you get there. And then it's like, right, I know everything there is to know. <laughs> Whoops, <there laughs> I'm, I'm here. <laughs> you know, like it's a field in, well, it's, I don't know other than oncology potentially, I don't know of any other area of specialization in which the medications and the protocols are changing so rapidly. 
And it's incumbent upon us to keep up with that. Yep. Um, And so even practitioners who, you know, might have done some training three or four years ago in in the world of women's health and fertility, you know, especially when you're supporting your patients through IVF, Mm. you just you're just out of the loop well and truly or even you know from country to country the protocols can be so very different it's like mm. we're speaking a different language um and so and fact, part of being in in the world of fertility is keeping up with well what's happening in other countries and what are they doing and what's the latest um and so it does involve a lot of additional training and getting your head around those um, those western medicine concepts I was writing an article uh, to go up uh, to support the ART module I have on my online learning platform, and it was about endometrial receptivity and the advances in the last few years on our, about our understanding of what the, when the uterus is most receptive to an embryo coming in and the changes that occur and the environment inside from a bacterial point of view and the use of probiotics and the timing of it all. And I was doing my research and I realized that I only had a UK perspective. So I was able to reach out to colleagues around the world and say, what do you do? What do the doctors you work with do? How do you see it? And to collate that information for my practitioners. But that was something that even a year ago I wasn't thinking about. So mm. things change so rapidly in the fertility feel that we have to keep up with it absolutely and it's crazy to try and do it on your own i think i you know i I mean i'm constantly attending well now mostly online seminars in the time of covid lockdown you know that that's how we're updating our knowledge is sharing you know and learning our knowledge from all over the world and and all different colleagues and getting different perspectives it's so important I agree. And practice what you preach, right? Because even in lockdown, you and I are both still investing in our knowledge. Yes. We're not able to stop. see our clients. It doesn't stop. Even when there's not a ton of money coming in, it doesn't stop. We keep going so that when we do get the gates open, we're there and ready and in the best place we can be. Yep. Well, what a great conversation. As our first oh, conversation, our, our debut into... Uh, <laughs> into uh, Heavenly Chi episodes with Nava and Claire. And take two, I think actually better than take one. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, what a great idea to redo it all (laughs) from the start. (laughs) And to our listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback. Um, Of course, you can reach out to myself or Nava. You'll find us on Facebook. And uh, we'd love to hear your overall thoughts on the show. You can leave us reviews and rate us on itunes that would be really great um, and share the podcast with all of your colleagues and share the heavenly chi vibes and the heavenly chi goodness um, across until next the world from in australia in england yes from across the world until next time bye for now bye for now